that all the children of Israel that desired to follow the Lord went south to Judah, to Jerusalem, so that they could worship. So all the guys that desired to follow the Lord, they went to the southern kingdom, representative of every tribe. And all the guys who wanted to rebel against the Lord, they moved north. So the reality is in the two kingdoms, you have representatives of each of the tribes. The leaders of the ten tribes were in the north. The leaders of the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, they were in the south. Northern kingdom went into captivity with Assyria, became assimilated, ultimately becomes part of, of who the Samaritans are when we come to the time of Christ. The southern kingdom is going to go into captivity against Babylon. We just saw the southern kingdom delivered. You remember the guy named Shennacherib. It's hard to forget a name like that, right? Shennacherib, he had all these crazy things to say about how no God could stop him from destroying the southern kingdom. And God told um, the, the people in Judah through Isaiah, they're not even going to shoot one bow in. Nothing. And we saw the Lord send an angel and 185,000 uh, of Shennacherib's army were destroyed. Shennacherib runs home and gets killed by his own children. And, uh, and then one of his younger children uh, take the throne. And ultimately, Shennacherib, or the kingdom of Assyria, is going to lose power to the kingdom of Babylon. That's going to take place a hundred years after that. So if we just finished a historical account in Isaiah uh, chapter 39 dealing with Hezekiah's illness and Hezekiah being delivered from Shennacherib, when we look at these other prophecies, it's a hundred years before they're going to go into captivity. They have an opportunity to, to fall into complacency, to a place where they're comfortable with their religion and they're forgetting all about having that heart after God. You remember that the Lord would call his people to circumcise the foreskin of their heart. But they were so focused on the act of religion that they would lose the opportunity for a relationship with God. We can look back in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy uh, uh, as we're going through on Wednesday night. And we see that their focus was to be centered on the Lord, to be in God's presence. Now, they fail, but we see that they had this desire to be central to the Lord. And that is exchanged over time with a form of godliness, but denying his power. We can wear fancy coats and, and pretty hats, and we can get all dressed up, and we can come and sing all the right songs and do all the right things, but if it's just tradition, it's empty. And that's where they would come. Now, as we go in Isaiah from chapter 40 forward, we're going to see prophecies concerning the consolation of, of, of Israel. Ultimately, as we get further and further on, they're going to deal more and more with the millennial kingdom, but primarily with the Messiah. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the promised coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 61, we'll see all those as we go on. And you should recognize the scriptures that we go over tonight in Isaiah chapter 40. There should be a couple at least there that are familiar to you. So let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll begin... Uh, this journey in the final section of the book of Isaiah. He says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm just sensitive to it. But I, 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 I'm sensitive to seeing threes in the Bible. 
especially, you know, in issues that deal with a relationship with God. Now, I'm not trying to say that you can prove the doctrine of the Trinity because he says comfort three times. But my question to you would be, why does he say comfort three times? What is, what is the point behind it? Comfort, yes. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, as we look at this, we don't want to get lost in the understanding. He is not talking about the nation of Israel being punished double. What he's talking about is them being forgiven their iniquity, being pardoned, being set free. The word used here that the Lord has given them double would be like taking a a piece of paper and folding it in half and you have the exact same amount on both sides. The idea is that God is going to pay, the price will be paid for their iniquity completely, utterly, not going to fall short not going to be too much. When the chastening of the Lord comes, when God's discipline comes in our life, it's not going to be too much or too little. It's going to be exactly what we need. But in this phrase, the way it's used in the Hebrew, he's talking about that simple fact. Hey, God is going to give you the exact thing you need for the forgiveness of your sins. He's going to provide exactly what is necessary. Keep in mind, what's he talking about here in verse 1? He's talking about... The repentance, their repentance, their forgiveness, and the staying of his hand of judgment. So we look, God's going to bring about this, this healing. And he's going to let them know that first off, I am greater than your circumstances. You've been at war. You've, you've dealt with all these things, all these problems in your life. But I'm bigger than all that. And even though you fall short in, in sin, even though you fall short with your iniquity, I'm going to give you double. I'm going to give you the exact thing you need to pay restitution, to pay what's owed, that you will be paid in full, that she would receive the exact payment for what was due. And look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, that should sound familiar. We've read that in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, we see the exact verse given to, uh, to uh, help understand the ministry of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. So that hearts were ready to receive him. And don't we see that hearts were prepared? We see what was necessary for hearts to be ready. A heart of repentance, right? What was John baptizing them in? A baptism of repentance, Turning from an old life, looking forward to a new. What was the new life? The one that had come to baptize with fire. The one who had come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That which John could not give. The one that came to give the power so that people were able to fulfill a righteous requirement that God lays out for us. This attitude of making straight paths. But that's what John was doing. In the context of what we're looking at tonight, this is what the Lord's going to do. Listen, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is one of several voices that we'll be reading about tonight. And this, in particular, is the voice of providence. The voice of providence. Okay, Israel, listen, I'm going to pay for your sins. They're going to be covered. I'm going to give the exact replica 
I'm going to give the exact other half, the double, to what you've been charged. I'm going to pay that price. And then in the voice of providence, he says, and I'm going to make, prepare the way before you. I'm going to prepare the path that you're going to walk. And you might say the the path is too rocky, the path is too hilly, the path is too hard. But the path that we walk is a path prepared before us by the hand of God. That we should walk in it. We may look around and, and be frustrated by the circumstances in life, but we have to realize Romans 8 tells us that we know all things work together for good. Not we hope, we know. We know that God is sovereign. God is in control. That God knows what he's doing. Even if we don't fully understand whatever it is that God is doing in our life. For we know all things work together for good to those who are called. The called according to his purpose. To those who are following the Lord's direction. To those who are following in his footsteps. He's going to prepare a path before you. The voice of providence. Make way, make or prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way. Allow for God to do a work in your life to prepare for you the road that God calls you to work. The the road that God calls you to be on. We know, do you know, I know that I can have a heart closed off to anybody's ability to direct me. That God may be trying to point me in one direction or another, but my attitude can be so messed up that I refuse to walk that way. To do that. Now, it doesn't mean that God, through His providence, is not going to bring about His sovereign will. He will, sooner or later, it's going to come to fruition. But I am choosing for myself the difficult path. Going around and around a mountain, however many times it takes for me to realize that I want to prepare the way of the Lord. But I want to prepare the way of the Lord in my heart. I want to give that place in my life where God has a fruitful place to speak, to grow, to, to, to help me become who I need to be. Or I can keep my heart all closed off, all the rooms sectioned off. I can tell God he can have this little room over here on the left. Or I can prepare my heart for what God wants to do in my life. I can prepare my heart so that he can guide my steps. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understanding. Make your own plans. Don't think you have everything figured out. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. That means, by the way, every way. And He will direct your steps. He will guide your path. He will make your path straight. Prepare the way of the Lord. Preparing your heart for God to work and to move in it. He says, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places will be made straight, and the rough places made smooth. The glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. When God ultimately delivers the nation of Israel, the Bible tells us when Jesus Christ returns, how many people will see him? So all the world will see him. All the world. There was a time when the world couldn't understand that. We don't really have a problem understanding that today, right? All the world is going to see his return. All the world is going to see his glory. But more than, more than seeing him return, more than seeing the battle that takes place, is the fact that every man, woman, and child will stand before a sovereign God. They will either stand before a sovereign God as their Lord and Savior, 
or they will stand before a sovereign God as their own Savior. But everyone will see His glory. The book of Revelation would declare to us at the judgment of God that everyone who faces the judgment of God will exclaim that He is true and righteous. True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. They're going to know that God's right. Every eye will see Him. Nobody's going to wonder, is there a God, isn't there a God? Everyone will stand before Him. And the ones who stand and say, I'll be so strong in that day, they will kneel just like everybody else. For every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Everyone is going to see his glory before his people. For the nation of Israel, look what he says. All those low points in your life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord says all those low places are going to be exalted. And all those high places, those, those times when we really thought we were on top of it all, they're going to be brought low. That through all the journey of our life, God keeps account. He knows what's going on in our lives. And he wants us to realize that sometimes those times when we think we failed and we're down in the valley, that's when the Lord's going to raise up and say, man, that was awesome. The, the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. We stand before Christ as Christians and, and give account of the works that we've done. The Bible says our actions will be passed through the fire. The, his eyes of a flame of fire will pass through our actions. That which is wood, hay, and stubble burns away. Gold, silver, and precious gems remain. That judgment, I think what he's laying out here is sometimes those things that we think were utter losses are going to be those things that God really points to and says, man, this was right on. And sometimes those things that we think were so great, God's going to say, ah, that wasn't so great. Bring those mountains down low. Bring the valleys up. Smooth out the path. Smooth out the path. We just trust the Lord and allow Him to go before us. And then He lays out for us next, after the voice of providence, the voice of promise in verse 6. And the voice said, cry out. And He said, what shall I cry? He said, all flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God lasts forever. He's laying out for Israel, who is celebrating in this prophecy. This prophecy, chapter 40, is dealing with them being set loose after the Babylonian captivity. A captivity that's still a hundred years away from the time it was given. And after they leave that captivity, the Lord says, look, all these nations that you thought were going to be the end-all, beat-all, where are they now? They're like the grass. The Assyrians, they, they, they ruled the world for 700 years. It's not a short kingdom. But anybody worried about the Assyrians today? The Babylonians, they ruled the world. But we're not all that worried about the Babylonians today either. We look at that and, and the Lord says, listen, they're like the grass. They're here. They're, they're the flower. They, maybe there are things that they do that are beautiful and that are wonderful, but at the breath of the Lord, they pass away. There's only one thing that endures forever. And that's the Word of God. The Word of God will endure forever. Jesus said, 
Not one jot or tittle will pass away until all things have been fulfilled. That's everything that was ever promised. Everything in the word of God. By the way, what Bible did Jesus preach out of? Uh, Old Testament. Yeah. Poor King Jimmy wasn't around then. But listen, Jesus, when he taught, Paul hadn't written anything, right? When, he, when he's talking about all these things being fulfilled, I believe he's speaking of the New Testament as well, the whole word of God. But I think also all the prophecies that we read about as we go through the prophets in the Old Testament that have not been accomplished to date. Jesus said, all these things will be fulfilled. God's word will come to pass. It's going to happen. Now the grass, it may come. There are times, folks, when I was a kid, I remember that there was a time when Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. People were pretty sure. Today, people are pretty sure Obama's the Antichrist, but he's not either. The point is, all of these different troubles, trials, issues come up in our life, and we think this is, this is going to be the end. They're all, they're all shadows of those things that will take place, and God wants us to have a heart that's prepared and ready for Him and His coming. But He doesn't want us to spend all our time focused on the grass. The grass is here today, gone tomorrow. He wants us focused on the Word of God. It's eternal. It's lasting. It's going to be with us. This is the voice of promise, the Word of God. The promises of God fulfilled in our lives. Then in verse 9, he goes on to the voice of peace. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. Now, Zion is just another name for Jerusalem, the mountain upon which Jerusalem is built. Uh, it also goes by Mount Moriah. Uh, but <clears throat> here, that's what Zion is speaking of. The voice of peace. Zion, get up on that high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He says, listen, I want you to give the gospel. Right? Declare the good news from the mountaintop. Go to the top of the mountain, speak with a voice of strength, and declare the gospel, the good news. The good news. What was the good news that he lays out for them? Lift it up and do not be afraid, says the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold your God. What? But not only is God going to release them from a captivity they haven't experienced yet and send them home uh, from Babylon, not only is God going to watch over and keep them as they rebuild the cities that were utterly destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, not only is God going to do all those things in his life, or in their lives, but even more than that, there's a day yet future where people will stand on the mountains and say, Behold your God, and there he is. And they will look upon him and mourn as one mourns for his only son. And they will look at his hands that are pierced and his feet that are pierced, Zechariah declares. And they'll ask, Where did you receive these wounds? And he'll respond, In the house of my friends. They'll mourn as one mourns for his only son when they realize, when they recognize Jesus as the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King, the Prince promised in Daniel chapter 9, the, the one who came in his, <clears throat> in his father's name and they didn't receive, for the one who will come in his own name that they will. 
But the day will come when this will be shouted from the mountaintops. Behold your God. Behold. In their day, the good news was, Babylon set us free. What about for us? What's the good news? We're set free from the power of sin. The sin has been destroyed. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. Behold our salvation. Jesus Christ. What he has done for us. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. And his arms shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him. And his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now what Psalm 23 says? The 23rd Psalm begins, the Lord is my shepherd. And the, the word Lord is what's known as a tetragrammaton. It's the YHVH. It is the exact name of God. And the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew was written with only consonants, no vowels. Over time, the high priest on his deathbed would whisper the name of God into the ear of the next high priest that was to take his place. Somewhere along the line, it was lost. No one knows the name of God, how it was pronounced. When Jesus returns, he's going to have a new name. And on his thigh will be written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Perhaps the name of God that's been lost, Y-H-V-H. Some say Jehovah. I'm pretty sure it won't be Jehovah because in the Hebrew there's no J. So that'll be a rough one. It could be Yehovah. The Yahweh, where we get Yahweh from. The reality is we don't know. Everybody's just guessing. But listen, what did it say? The Lord, Almighty God, God in heaven and earth, He is my shepherd. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. What was He declaring Himself to be? Who's the shepherd? Psalm 23 says, The Lord, Almighty God, is my shepherd. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. In case you think, well, maybe He didn't mean that. Listen, A little while earlier, someone came to him and said, Good teacher. And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's only one good. Who's that? God. So when Jesus used that same phrase of himself and he says, I am the good shepherd, what does he mean to say? He's saying exactly what he means. I am the shepherd of Psalm 23. The shepherd that with us we shall not want. He is everything we need. Everything that we need in our life. And here we see God as that shepherd coming with a strong hand. His arm ruling. Behold, his reward is with him. When the Lord comes, when the Lord returns, when we come with him, there's not this long waiting process. There is the reward of the Lord with him. To me, the greatest reward of the Lord is his presence. I don't really want nothing else. What, what I desire has nothing to do with a thing or, or some gold or silver or crown that the Lord gives me. has everything to do with hearing one small phrase from Him. Well done. Anybody can muddle through. I want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. You didn't take the talent that I gave you and bury it in the sand. 
You didn't take the gifts, the spiritual gifts that I gave you and and bury them in the sand and say, "Uh, I'm not going to use any of these things. I want to live my life so that when the Lord returns, my reward is seeing him face to face. No question, no, uh, you know, wow, sometimes I, I struggle with doubts in my life. There'll be no doubts on that day. Think about it. What is it that the Lord learned about human nature or or that God knew about human nature? This is what he knew. Even though I'm in their presence, even though they see me every day, seeing is not believing. So today we don't see. And yet we believe. Children of Israel, remember at Kadesh Barnea, they had the presence of God right over top of them. Kadesh Barnea, the opportunity to enter into the fulfillment of the promises of God in the promised land. As they stood in that place, with the shadow of the Shekinah glory of God over top of them, they refused to believe God that he would take care of them. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Ultimately, Joshua and Caleb tried to talk the people into going, no, come on, guys, we can really do it. And the people were so angry, they elected another leader to take them back to Egypt, and they began to stone Joshua and Caleb. You know what saved them? The Bible says the glory of the Lord came down, and God spoke. And all that craziness they had going on left. But they didn't enter into the land. They saw, but they didn't believe. Even though they had that presence. The day is coming when we're going to have the presence of God with us. And because we believe, because we choose to walk by faith, that's everything we need. Everything we need. Exodus chapter 3, when when Moses says, Lord, who shall I say sent me? The Lord says, I am the becoming one. I am everything they need. You tell them, I am. I am has sent you. We, through Jesus Christ, come to know the great I am. The shepherd with whom we need no other. Who meets all of our needs. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them with his bosom. When we look forward and we see in the, in the time of the 144,000, the 144,000 in the book of Revelation are announced in chapter 7. Chapter 7, the 144 are announced. Chapter 19, they're named again. Anybody know how many are left? 144,000. None of them were lost. Not a one. Why? Because God sealed them. He said, they're mine. He didn't lose a one. He won't lose one of his little lambs. He's able to carry them through. Verse 12, we go on and we see now the circumstances that are before us. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Measured the heavens with the span Uh, with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighted the mountains and the scales and the hills in a balance. What is he saying in, in verse 12? He's saying, listen, all of creation was designed for us to exist. There's actually a theory that states the exact same thing, scientific theory, that now is being proposed that creation shows... That it was designed for us to exist. You realize one degree off, closer or further away 
from where the earth is in the solar system and life cannot exist. And that's just one of about 25 different things that if they weren't exactly like they are, life could not exist. The mathematical possibility that that would happen by random chance is ridiculous. So ridiculous that science has developed a theory. Uh, I want to say the anthropic theory, but I can't remember. Anthropic theory or anthropic principle that deals with the fact that Creation shows design that we were created or we exist because of creation for or to be a part of creation. And here that's what, he's, that's what the Lord is saying. Listen, he measured the waters. He measured the heavens. He calculated the dust in the earth. That's a lot of calculations. He weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and the balance. He knows all these things. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who was his counselor or taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who was it that guided the Lord? The Babylonian God, the creator God for the Babylonians, his name is Marduk. Marduk was not allowed to create until he had gone and received counsel from the higher gods. The Lord is saying, I don't receive counsel from anybody. I did all this. I did it all. No one told me. No one guides me. Behold, the nations, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. Now the Lord, thinking of the the circumstances before us, he says, hey, I'm greater than the nations. God is greater than all the nations. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Lebanon was known... For all its cedars, a great forest. Now it's beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. He's saying even if you lit all of Lebanon and put all of its beasts on the offering, it's not enough. There's not enough wood to burn. There's not enough animals to sacrifice. God himself had to become a sacrifice to pave the way for sin. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. The nations put so much emphasis on who's at the top of the food chain. I think it's better not to be on the top of the food chain. The only thing I know about a nation at the top of the food chain is they're not going to stay there. That's what history says, right? History teaches us they don't stay. He goes on to tell us then, God is greater than the idols. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution, he chooses a tree that will not rot. And he seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not teeter. God's saying, listen, they go out and they choose these idols. And if they don't have enough money to get a really fancy one, they just get a cheap one out of wood, but they make sure they find somebody good enough to make it so it doesn't wobble. And then they pray to that. The Lord, it's, it's ridiculous. The concept is ridiculous. He goes on and says, Now, God's greatness is, is the evidence of His greatness in all of creation. Look, have... You not known, have you not heard, has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, when did we figure that out? Forever, the church actually would burn people who said things like, the, the earth is round. Isaiah would have been in bad shape with them. The circle, the sphere of the earth. He sits over the circle of the earth. But the earth is it's flat. Everybody knows you get to the edge and you fall off. Isaiah told us. He <laughs> might. <laughs> the, the Lord lays out for us right here. Castleford is not the end of the world. <laughs> the Lord lays out for us that the earth was round. The earth is round. The circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And when he will also blow on them, they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might, by the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Literally, he says, I know all the stars. Listen, I, I don't want to grind this into the, to the dust, but the Lord declared that the stars were innumerable. For the majority of history, mankind did not believe it because he could count the stars in the sky. He could look up and count them. The Lord says it's innumerable. You know, it's just one of them figures of speech. It doesn't really mean they're innumerable. But we know better now, right? At the time when it was spoke, stars could be counted. But now we know there are stars beyond stars, beyond stars, beyond stars. Billions and billions and billions. And the Lord says he knows them all by name. Every star. Then look at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? You know, I love that. I love that the Bible says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know that Abraham's initial name was Abram, right? And the Lord changed his name. What did he add to his name? The Ruach, the breath. Kind of like, Adding the spirit to be saved. He, bre- he breathed that breath, the ruach in Abram, and it became Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, but he changed Jacob's name too. But over and over again, the Lord refers to Jacob. I'm the God of Jacob. Why does he tell us that? Because he's not ashamed to be known by Jacob's name. He was not ashamed of Jacob. You and me, we might have been ashamed of Jacob. We know Jacob was a liar, a thief. He'd rob anything, he'd take anything, he'd get over on anybody he thought he could get over on. But his heart was after the Lord. So much so that the time came in his life when he changed his name to Israel, governed by God. Jacob, Jacob, which means supplanter, the one trying to get over on somebody else. But he changed it. But I love the fact that whenever God's, whenever Jacob's doing well, God calls him Israel. 
So we have an idea. Hey, look, Jacob's walking in the spirit. And then when Jacob's struggling, the Lord says, Jacob. And we say, oh, it's like, like he's walking in the flesh. It's like a little picture of walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. It's not perfect, but I like that, that picture that we see going through. And I like here he says, listen, why do you say, oh, Jacob? Why do you speak, oh, Israel? It's the same person. Calls them by both their names. The liar, the thief. And he who is governed by God. When he lays that out. And I love the fact that he's not ashamed of Jacob. So he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of me. And he calls us not to be ashamed of him. That we would not be afraid to be known by his name. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord? Why do you you ever heard people say things like, uh, God can't see me. He doesn't know what I'm doing. There's no place dark enough for that. There's no place dark enough for that. My way is hidden from the Lord. And my just claim is passed over by God. The two greatest excuses that people have when they talk about God. God doesn't see me or God doesn't care. That's what he says. Why are you saying, Jacob, why do you say, oh Israel, God doesn't see me or God doesn't care? He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about the things that are going on in my life. He says, have you not known... Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, and his his understanding is unsearchable. The scripture would say his ways are past finding out. Well, sometimes we might think God doesn't see. Sometimes we might think God doesn't care. But right here, he says it's not true. And then look, look what he said. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not known what? Have you not heard what? The Word. Have you not heard what the Word of God says, what the Word of God teaches? Have you not seen, have you not read, do you not know that God sees everything? The psalmist would say, even though I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. There's no place to hide from the eyes of God. He sees all. And He cares about it all. But His ways are past finding out. Unsearchable is his understanding. Being able to figure out the things that God is doing in your life. Because while God's working in your life, he's working in all the people's lives around you that are seeing you go through whatever you're going through. And simultaneously, through your choices, he's working out his perfect will so that it can affect all the people around you. And we think we got, uh, we think we got things figured out. We, have not, we don't even have a clue. What's the word of God tell us? His understanding is unsearchable. We cannot understand his ways. What do you have to do? Trust him. How do we know we can trust him? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The word of God. Every story, every concept, every every precept as we go through the word of God is all about God's ability to deliver his people, to carry his people through, to redeem mankind. Every promise absolutely true. Every prophecy absolutely will take place. The word of God is eternal and everything else is passing away. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord God, he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. The creator of the ends of the earth. Listen, he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. 
Remember when Paul said, I, I had this thorn in my flesh and I prayed three times that the thorn in my flesh would be removed? And the Lord said, uh, no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect, how? In your weakness. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. It's when we're closest to the Lord. When we are weak, He shows Himself strong. And we think we're doing fine on our own. We're not in a place where we can be molded and shaped. So we find ourselves in places where where it's beyond our control. And I don't know what to do. Then God says, now, press into me. I will give strength to the weak. I will give strength to the weak. The one who says, I'm good, I'm fine, everything's good. I got this all under control. Oh, man. That means you have to go further. I always thought it's easier to learn sooner rather than later. That was that example for my brothers. Where dad would sit down with me and I would have the opportunity to come clean and just have a, a minor whooping. But somehow I was always pushing it to the major whooping. And I could hear my brothers in the other room. Dad, or, or Jackie, just, just, just submit. No, they didn't say that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Do what dad wants. Do what dad wants. Say what, you know, and I had that ornery in me that had to be driven out. With the hand of correction. We had that ornery in us. And the Lord God Almighty will drive it out by the hand of correction. The Bible says, if you love your children, you discipline them promptly. God loves us that way too. But he'll give strength to us when we're weak. He doesn't just leave us there. And he doesn't do it because he hates us. He does it because he loves us. And he wants us to have that right relationship with him. So he's going to give power to the weak. And even when youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Now, quick lesson in Hebrew. Where he says, even the youths will faint and be, and be weary. He's talking about failure under pressure and a lack of strength. That's what those words mean. Failure under pressure and a lack of strength. And when he says, and the young men will utterly fall, that means a utter exhaustion because of the hardness of life. So when we look at that, keep that in mind. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And even the young men shall utterly fall due to the hardness of life. But those who wait on the Lord, active patience equals endurance. When he's talking about waiting, this is not a passive word that's just waiting around for something to happen. It's an active word. The best way I've understood it is to have it explained like a waiter waiting. Those who wait on the Lord. That's an active wait. To be seeking the Lord. To to be looking to minister to the Lord. Even as a waiter. Those who wait upon the Lord. this This is an active word, not a passive word. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. That means they'll add supernatural strength to supernatural strength. God's central. We're waiting on Him. We're pressing into Him. We're making Him everything that we are. And we renew our strength. We have all the strength that we need. Strength upon strength upon strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. 
They will run and not be weary. That's the word for failure under pressure. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and shall not faint. That's the word for failing because of the hardness of life. What he's saying is you'll be able to run and you won't grow weary from the pressure around you and you'll be able to walk and not faint. What's, what, what, is our, what is it called, our relationship with, with the Lord? It's called a walk, right? That we walk the walk. That the true test of anyone is endurance. And where is endurance shown? In the walk, not in the run. Anybody can sprint. But to, to steadily walk with the Lord. And what does he say? If you steadily walk with me, life It's not going to be so hard that it crushes you. You walk with me and you won't faint. The hardness of life is not going to take you out. You won't experience the exhaustion that comes as a result. So what does he lay out for us in his promise? He lays out for us his voices. He talks to us about about God's ultimate deliverance, the forgiveness of sins. And then he leaves us with that phrase, listen... In all these things, let God be true and every man a liar. He says, I will give strength to the weak. But before he says that, he calls us to be weak. Not strong on our own. And then he calls us to wait on the Lord. And whenever you think about that, I don't want you to think about that idea of sitting around in a circle waiting for something to happen. I want you to think about being a waiter for the Lord. He's come to sup with you. Serve Him. Wait on the Lord. It's an active phrase. And renew your strength. Strength upon strength upon strength. Why? Because we're weak. And He says to the weak, I will give them strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. Everybody would love to fly like an eagle, wouldn't they? I would. They will mount up with wings of eagles. So he goes from flying to running to walking. Seems kind of backwards, don't it? We'll mount up with wings of eagles. We'll run and not grow weary from the pressures that are around us. But the bottom line is, life will not be so hard that it crushes us. There's another name for that. Jesus said, I have come to give you life And life more abundant. The word for abundant life is the word zoe. Unstoppable, unquenchable life. Life that never gives up to those who wait on the Lord. Amen? We're going to close tonight as we do on Sunday nights with just a time of prayer. So we'll, we'll kind of shut down the lights and I'll get us started. Basically what we do on Sunday nights is we'll pray till we stop. If you got a bail, God bless you. Have a, a great week. We'll miss you. If you're able to stay, stay and pray. Remember, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I'll hear their cries from heaven. The Lord God wants to move in our lives today, and so it's an encouragement for us to come before him. But as you, you come to the Lord in prayer, we invite you to pray. We invite you to share. We invite you to, to do all those things and and, uh, and as you do that, and as you have those opportunities, all we ask is that you be sensitive to the other people around that may like to pray, and uh, just pray for about three to five minutes. Um, is it about Tina? Yeah. Tina Baker's son? Yeah. 
was, uh, was in an accident, and they had to take him to the hospital. I think the expectancy is that he's going to be okay, but just bumps and bruises. So, so we want to make sure to lift up Tina Baker, Tina and John, and, and their family, uh, obviously going through uh, a difficult time, and also praise the Lord for his deliverance, his hand being uh, on their son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word, that your word is eternal. And Father God, we do thank you for your providence, even as you worked with Tina and, and in John's life in this accident, that you kept her son safe, Lord God, and, and uh, probably just a little bit freaked out with bumps and bruises. But God, we praise you. We praise you that, the, that you were there. We praise you that nothing happens in our life that, that is outside of your understanding and your knowledge. Lord, we thank you for that work that you're doing uh, in their lives and, and in his life as well. Father, we also, as we, as we come before you, we want to praise you for, uh, for just the fact that uh, a woman come up to me today to announce that she is cancer-free. Cancer-free after being told that she only had six weeks to live. And... Uh, God, I thank you that man doesn't have the ability to pr- pronounce a sentence of death, only you. And you're the one who heals. And Lord, it just uh, reminds me of Jeannie, Father, we just pray, God. Lord, that you would do an amazing work in her life as she faces uh, the same battles uh, before her. We thank you for the good report from the doctors. We thank you for the, the, the good report and the fact that her eyes are clear now and she can see and she's able to drive. And we thank you, God, that you continue to guide and give her strength. And we continue, Father, to pray for a healing. Lord, we continue to pray for this body, and we ask that you would pour out your spirit in an amazing way, Father. And we ask now, as we just seek your presence in a, in a time of prayer, God, that you would move, that you would guide, that you would lead. Father, if you place a word on someone's heart, that they would share it. Lord, if you would... Uh, just place uh, an, an opportunity to, to be a blessing to someone that they would feel free to, to do that. Lord God, that you would enable each of us to exercise our spiritual muscles and allow you to move in this place in a great way. So Lord, we lay this time before you in Jesus' name.